Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. The London attack suspect has been charged with terrorism. More potential graves detected at the site of a former residential school. The G7 is over. What did we learn? It's coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. The Toronto Zoo is pre-opening this weekend. A good sign things are returning to normal. Are you sure the animals want us? It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure about that. Hey, what? how come he's live and I'm on the phone? What is going on here? Uh, good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 900 THML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Oh, boy, just running around like a chicken with his head cut off, trying to figure out what the heck is going on here. Uh, but yes, give, him, give him a little bit of an applause. He certainly needs it right now. And maybe a shot. Uh, anyway, yeah, some technical difficulties here. So, um, you know, once we get the uh, two tin cans and the string together, uh, we'll get back to normal. Hello? Is it working? Oh, my goodness. We're back. Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It is the Scott Thompson Home Show. Uh, you know, various forms or not. Phone, Zoom, technology, microphone, hand in pocket, whatever. You know, we're here. Uh, feel free to jump into the combo. Love to hear from you. Send us a note via the website, Thompson at 900CHML.com. Oh, the commentary is coming up. Did you ever start one of those jobs on a Sunday, then realize once you're knee-deep in it, this is a way bigger task than originally anticipated or really wanted? I have delayed trimming a large tree for so long, it has grown another meter and even more difficult now. So I called in a professional, or semi-professional, my friend Andre, who had the gear and certainly looked like he knew what he was doing. After tying the tree off to his pickup truck... He climbed a ladder with a buzzing chainsaw. At that point, I thought we were way in over our heads. Nope. Andre the surgeon whittled away at it, dropping each section neatly on my neighbor's front lawn while not bringing anything down that wasn't intended. A massive goal in my eyes. However, it's amazing how much bigger a tree is when it's lying on your front lawn instead of pointing skywards. The cutting took less than an hour. The cleanup took the rest of the afternoon and plenty of cool drinks. So much for the backyard. I'm Scott Thompson. We all remember the horrific story, the horrific tragedy that is still uh, playing out in London. A family of, uh, of five, one nine-year-old boy surviving, and the rest of the family uh, wiped out when taken out with a suspect's vehicle uh, and, and pickup truck literally mowing these people down. And uh, soon afterwards, it was discovered that uh, uh, this was not only a hate crime, but they were considering uh, terrorism charges here. And that is, in fact, what has happened as uh, police have charged this London attacker uh, with terrorism charges as well. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Rick, uh, Risk Consulting, director of the University of Ottawa's security uh, program and former with CSIS. Phil, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. How are you? 
I'm doing good. So, you know, it's fascinating how uh, once this story broke and, of course, uh, the tragedy and the family and all uh, involved, but very, very little information about the actual suspect. Are you surprised? Yes and no. I mean, obviously, you know, I worked when I worked at CSIS, I worked alongside law enforcement. In fact, I worked for the OPP anti-terrorism section when I retired from CSIS. So, you know, when you're doing investigations, Scott, you got to keep your cards close to your chest because, you have to gather the information necessary to go to court, and if it's, if it's collected in the wrong way or it's spilled out too early, the case could fall apart, and you don't want that to happen. So you understand from the police perspective. The other thing that's inter- interesting to me is that um, from everyone else's perspective, the media and stuff, they, they try to you know figure out who this kid was, I guess young man is what we should call him, and they couldn't find a lot, right? There was no social media presence. People said he was just a normal kid. Then we had information about maybe some mental health issues after his parents' divorce, maybe some drug issues. But it did surprise me that there weren't a lot of tidbits out there that told us who he was and, more importantly, why he may have carried out the attack of violence that he did in London. And so we were kind of like like grasping at straws. And then, unfortunately, a lot of speculation took the place of a lack of knowledge. And that's rarely a good thing to have happen. Um, you, you mentioned about how there was little, nothing on social media. Is that because it was swept quite early and removed quite early or, uh, there was just nothing there? I have no idea. Uh, it could be both. Yeah. I, 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 what, the reason I found it odd, Scott, and people commented, he was quite the gamer apparently. Now I'm way too old to be a gamer, Scott, but, um, it does stand to reason that people who engage in that kind of world on a regular basis do have a fairly significant presence somewhere online, be it in chat mm-hmm. forums, be it on certain websites. And that just simply didn't seem to be there. So was it taken down? Maybe. Was it never there? Maybe. Again, um, not a lot of information. So it's really hard for us to come with a definitive conclusion as to why that social media presence seemed to be absent. We remember, I was talking to somebody else about this last week, too, uh, and the same thing with Aaron Driver when that situation happened in Strathroy, um, and he died during the uh, uh, bomb that that exploded. But at the end of the day, we didn't hear much about that either. No, and this is frustrating. It's frustrating for you guys in the media. Um, It's frustrating for the Canadian public. It's frustrating for people that myself, I used to work in security intelligence or law enforcement, because for two things. Um, one, you want the most information possible to get a successful prosecution. Secondly, I think as consumers of information, when we're faced with a with a heinous, cowardly act of violence, and this was a cowardly act. I mean, he ran people over from behind. They didn't see him coming. We want to know why. We want to understand how is it that a person could do this to an innocent family. And when we don't get those answers immediately, um, we were frustrated. And as a result, we may engage in speculation or draw conclusions that aren't based on the facts at hand. So I understand why people want to know more about this, especially given the nature of the crime. It appeared to be a hate crime. Uh, it appeared to be premeditated. And everyone wants you know, to kind of you know, cross the T's and dot the I's on this one and figure it out. But um, investigations take time. And, and as I said earlier, if you don't do them properly, the cases could fail. So I, I tip my hat to the police for remaining mum as frustrating it is for you and me and, and the rest of the Canadians. 
And, and we, you know, we can certainly understand that we don't uh, we we don't need to be privy to information if that in indeed jeopardizes the case. But there has to be some sort of happy medium here, where you know. And I understand their number one priority is to solve the case. It's not necessarily to keep all of us informed. But at the end of the day, we need to learn from this, especially when you've got such a highly uh, charged and sensitive issue as this and involving race and such. I mean, this is where people need to learn. And uh, you know, it almost reminds me of the NACI Health Canada thing with the AstraZeneca. It's it's like, I understand what everybody's job is here, but we also have to keep aware of, of the public and the people we're serving too. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I, I completely, I think you, you, you made a really good point, Scott. And I, I guess that the, the question becomes, what is that happy medium? So law enforcement, yeah. by definition, by default, tends to, you know, lip sealed kind of thing. The public wants more information rather than not less. I agree with you that um, certain things probably should be disclosed, which aren't going to affect the investigation or prejudice the case. So we have to get, you know, those of us used to work in the, in the spook world like me, be a little more forthcoming uh, without, you know, selling out the store because, you know, Canadians deserve to know. And as I said, the problem is when nothing is said, that, ga- that vacuum is going to get filled. And sometimes the vacuum yeah. is filled by all kinds of speculation that is far from accurate and, and far from based in reality. Um, uh, obviously, we don't know all of the evidence here. Are you surprised at the terrorism charge? Uh, I thought last week when there was mention of mental illness, that may not be a factor because it obviously involves some sort of organizational effort to have that charge. What is the criteria for a terrorism charge? What is needed? Under Section 83.01 of the Criminal Code, God, it has to be an act of violence, either planned or perpetrated for political, ideological or religious reasons. And the second clause is it has, there has to be an intent to intimidate the public. What it appears to me are one of two things. It appears either the police, and by the way, I understand London police. By the way, I'm from London, so I, I, you know, I, I have a kind of a, a personal stake in this. Um, London police worked with the Integrated National Security Enforcement Teams, or INSETS, which are part of the RCMP, whom I dealt with a lot when I was at CSIS. They may have uncovered enough evidence at this point to justify a terrorism charge. That, and that's a good thing. I always said, if the evidence is there, by all means, do it. The other thing, and this is purely speculative on my part, here I am, you know, railing in speculation. Everybody and his uncle called this terrorism. The prime minister called it terrorism. Yeah. Uh, NDP leader Jackie Singh called it terrorism. Premier Doug Ford called it terrorism. Public Safety Minister um, Blair called it terrorism. And I at the time said this is irresponsible because politicians should not be dictating the charges to be laid. That is a police matter and a police matter only. So purely speculative, Scott, and I have to stress that, was there some pressure felt because of what the prime minister and the others said? Was there some pressure felt by the crown to lay a terrorism charge? I sincerely hope not. I sincerely hope the charge is dictated solely on the evidence that has been uncovered. That's the way it think, should work. So what you know, I, I think what I think what's interesting in this case is when these have come up in the past or situations similar uh, or, or terror related, uh, leaders have been very hesitant to do that. Uh, the Toronto van attack, they did not do that. The prime minister did not call it terrorism, uh, initially. And, and yet, as you mentioned, boom, 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 all the leaders are doing that now. So, um, I, I think what makes it interesting or, or makes it stand out is that they haven't in the past. Yeah. And, you know, there was an attack in Edmonton, I think it was in 2017 or 2018, where a guy with an ISIS flag on, on, on his car ran over a police officer outside Commonwealth Stadium who luckily survived. And they ran over four or five people on Jasper Ave in the downtown, right. also all of whom survived. He was not charged with terrorism. He was found guilty of attempted murder and got 29 years. Mr. Bissonnette, the guy in Quebec City in 2017 at the mosque, 
he was not charged with terrorism, and everyone would, would pretty well call that an act of terrorism. So the problem, Scott, is we're dealing with multiple levels of what terrorism means. Yeah. There's what you think it means, there's what the public thinks it means, there's what the Canadian Criminal Code says it means, and everything in between. So, again, I'm just really hopeful that um, the reasons to lay terrorism charges are legitimate, they're based on evidence, and they're not based on the fact that the Prime Minister called it such. And at the end of the day, um, there would have to be some sort of link to some sort of organization or those that are organized, No. No, um, it's, it all ties with ideology or politics or religion. So if it can be demonstrated that this young man ha- was uh, espoused an ideology, be it, you know, whatever, white supremacism or neo-Nazism yeah. or anti-immigrant or whatever kind of ideology you want, that's not under the criminal code. The challenge, Scott, is what is an ideology? And a lot of people say, well, it definitely was a hate crime, therefore it's terrorism. The problem is, is that hate is not an ideology. Lots of yeah. ideologies have hateful elements to them, but hate itself is not an ideology. He could have been charged excuse me, with a hate crime. He's been charged with first-degree murder. At the end of the day, the sentence won't change depending on whether it's terrorism or first-degree murder. It's the same sentence. I think the the terrorism charges are largely political in nature, but again, if the evidence dictates it, I'm all for it. And if if the Crown can't prove terrorism, that doesn't mean they lose the case on first-degree murder. So, again, the reasons why this was done, I'm, I'm, I'm blind to them, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic here. I'm trying not to be cynical and say that Inset did it, uncover something, a statement. Maybe he actually admitted to this, an ideology. Maybe he wrote something down, like a manifesto or a, well, a two-page, whatever kind of thing. And that's why they've charged terrorism. I guess we're going to have to wait and see. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, um, the, the terrorism charge does not affect the other murder charges. So I, I guess my question is, if they go in there with trumped up terrorism charges, is that a, a field day for the defense? And then perhaps they lose that charge. But at the end of the day, the other murder charges are still in place. Absolutely. It's funny you, you asked that, Scott, because last week I was on another program with a defense lawyer and he said, if I'm defending this guy, I've got no hope to defend him with first-degree murder. I mean, it's a fact, and, and I, I can't do anything to, to, to mitigate that. You charge him with terrorism, I now have 100 different ways to defend my client in terms yeah. of, you know, what ideology did he belong to? What organization did he belong to? How do you prove this was done for that reason? How can you get inside his head? So from a defense perspective, it actually makes their job easier, it makes the Crown's job a lot more difficult to prove ideology, which, again, goes back to our initial question. If that's the case, why not? limit your charges to first-degree murder. You're going to get a conviction mm-hmm. on those. He's not going to see the light of day uh, for at least 25 years, unless the sentence is compounded. What's the point of charging terrorism? I think it's, send a, it's to send a message. It's a political message to send to Canadians. Is that a good enough reason? Some would say yes. I would say no, but that's yeah, just me. Would it matter if it's uh, domestic or international? I mean, the definition would still be the same, whether it's linked to something outside of the country or something that's solely within Absolutely. It does make a difference. In, in the States, it does. In the United States, they have domestic versus international terrorism. In Canada, yeah. the criminal code is neutral on that. We don't care. We don't care if it comes from Pluto. It's, it's, it, is it ideologically, religiously, or, or politically motivated? And that's been the definition of terrorism since 9-11, because we had no terrorism charges prior to 9-11, Scott. They all came in after that event. So as long as the Crown can demonstrate that, um, it's terrorism. It doesn't matter where it came from. It doesn't matter if you had links abroad. or You may have no links to anybody, what we call a lone actor, somebody who just yeah. you know, you got radicalized to this ideology and decided to kill for it. That's all the Crown has to show. You said that this charge has only been around since 9-11. Is it time for an update or, or clarification as the world changes? Perhaps. Um, my fear is, is that 
Um, I've noticed a tendency over the past three or four years to call all kinds of all kinds of acts of violent terrorism. And yeah. I don't think they are. And I'll give you a prime example: um, the van attack in Toronto in 2018 by a so-called violent incel. Who, by the way, the judge demonstrated he lied about his incel um, relation. So he probably wasn't even an incel to begin with, or wasn't a, you know wasn't part of the, the so-called movement. When we start talk, calling all kinds of things terrorism, we cheapen the term. And it means it's, it's essentially it's, 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 a, it's an ineffective term. And, and again, at the end of the day, if you can charge someone with murder or attempted murder versus terrorism, and it's the exact same outcome, what's the difference from a judicial mm-hmm. perspective? You know, you know, Scott, we went through FLQ terrorism in the 60s in this country up to the October crisis in 1970. No terrorism charges were available. We went through Armenian terrorism in the 80s. And when I was in Ottawa, there were two attacks against Turkish diplomats. No terrorism charges were late. Air India. Biggest terrorism attack in history prior to 9-11. No terrorism charges late. So we, we were able to get along just fine for you know, 150 years of this country without terrorism. So if it disappeared tomorrow, it wouldn't affect how we, how we prosecute people. So when you ask, is it due for an update, maybe it's due for just chucking out of the criminal code altogether and just going back mm. to, the bare, to the bare basics. Uh, at the beginning of uh, of this, uh, earlier on uh, last week, uh, initial reports, as you mentioned, uh, said that he had uh, been dealing with mental illness in the past. How does that complicate all of this? A ton, because there was another case a couple of years ago where a guy went into a, a Canadian Armed Forces recruiting center, and I think it was in Markham, with a knife, and he stabbed a couple of soldiers, didn't kill them, thankfully, and he was an Islamist extremist. He, he, was, he was an ISIS supporter. And uh, he was found, he was clear of all charges based on mental illness. So, you know, if this young man in London is found to be not criminally responsible due to mental illness, then all the charges are dropped. You can't, you can't find someone who is incapable of understanding their crimes guilty under the criminal code. So, that, I mean, that probably one of the cards the defense is going to play. Was he diagnosed with a mental illness? Uh, is it something that they can use to, uh, you know, to undermine the Crown's case? I don't know. I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, but I did find it interesting that it, that, that was one of the things, as you said, that came out rather rel- relatively quickly in the sort of media's investigation of who this guy was. So it definitely is another, it's another strategy that the defense can use to uh, undermine the Crown's case, absolutely. Does this person fit any profile for you, or can you profile any of these people? You can't profile that, and I wish you could. You know what, Scott? If you could profile people, that makes CSIS job and RCMP jobs so easy. Uh, yeah. In fact, I mean, if you may, in my very first book back in 2015, The Threat From Within, I talked about indicators, but they're not predictive in nature. Um, you know, there's certain things that people do and certain things that people say, which are indicative of somebody radicalizing along a certain pathway, but that doesn't mean that they're going to radicalize the violence. In fact, the vast majority of people who hold to very violent ideologies never do anything. Lots of people talk the talk and don't walk the walk. So, yeah. you know, as, as a security service or in law enforcement, you, you investigate these people to see if, in fact, they're going to cross that threshold from actually just, you know, p- pondering things into actually putting things in, in, into action. So, no, this, this kid doesn't fit a profile, profile any more than anybody else fits a profile. And, that, and, that, and that's, <clears> the, that's the frustrating part when, part when you work in law enforcement and security. You'd love to have a checklist. You know, you know checkboxes one through five, you've got a potential terrorist. Excellent. I wish it worked that way, but unfortunately, in the real world that Mm -hmm. I live in, it doesn't work that way. So who lays this charge? Is it London police or is this RCMP? I'm not entirely certain, but I'm going to guess that because of the the, the place of jurisdiction is London police services, it will be them uh, with the assistance of the RCMP. At the end of the day, it's it's the Crown that recommends the charges, right? So the police do their investigation. They, they, They talk to the Crown. 
they negotiate and say, okay, what evidence do you have? Based on the evidence you've collected, we think this is a possible charge. I mean, I'm not a legal expert, Scott. You really should talk to somebody who's better versed in this. Yeah. But I think it's, it's a result of a, of a collaborative dialogue between, again, the police of jurisdictions, the London police. They've talked to the RCMP. They've talked to the incense. I'm sure they talked to the Crown Office in London and maybe Crown Offices elsewhere in Ontario or Canada. And they've come up with this decision as of this morning to lay terrorism charges. Uh, but again, these are charges. This is not a guilty verdict, right? Yeah. He, he, he will get his day in court, and the defense will have to will be able to defend him. So unless he unless he pleads guilty to all these charges tomorrow, it's just still a work in progress. Uh-huh. And you know, maybe the crown will be successful, and we'll get a, a first degree murder conviction as well as a terrorism conviction. Maybe we'll only get first degree murder. Maybe we'll get the case dismissed for other reasons such as mental health. We'll have to wait and see. And then the waiting part is the frustrating part, I think, for Canadians because of the nature of, the, of, a, of a, such a terrible crime of this nature. Bill Gursky has been with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, director of the University of Ottawa Security Program and former analyst at CSIS, talking about uh, a charge of terrorism being, in la- uh, being laid in relation to the London attack. Phil, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. What I will say um, in listening to the Prime Minister calling on the Pope to apologize, while important, um, that apology, the federal government, and this is my concern, cannot continue to offload their responsibility to do what's right with respect to Indigenous peoples. Jody Wilson-Raybould on with Roy Green uh, this past weekend talking about uh, the issues uh, that have just slammed Canadians in the face in the last couple of weeks uh, in regard to residential schools with, of course, the discovery of 215 remains uh, below the site of that former residential school and with uh, just under 150 residential schools, former schools across this country, uh, you have to wonder uh, if this, in fact, is just the tip of the iceberg. And now, uh, as the Kamloops story came to surface, as does another uh, in Brandon, Manitoba, where uh, First Nations are working to identify 104 potential graves at a former Brandon residential school site. Let's bring in David Robertson, author of Sugar Falls, a residential school story, and is with us now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, thanks for having me. So give us an update on this Brandon uh, site and, and where this investigation is now at this point. Well, I think right now what they're doing is they're trying to mobilize to uh, to do an active search uh, for um, the, the bodies that they um, are, are quite certain are um, are buried around the, where the Brandon Residential School uh, was located. Um, right now, they believe that those um, those children are buried under what is now a campground and RV park. Um, so I think there's a lot of logistics that. Um, they need to, you know, uh, clear up and and um, and uh, you know, as with anything, there's a lot of you know bureaucratic tape that they need to cut through. Um, but this is a needs to be a priority. Um, we we know that this is you know, like you said, um, we we know that this is the tip of the iceberg. There are far more um, uh, children that uh, need to come home, and and there's 104 in Brandon that need to come home. Uh, and this investigation was ongoing at the same time the Kamloops investigation was was ongoing. Is that accurate? That's correct. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I think um, they've this, we've been aware of or or have known has been a possibility for 
I think a couple of years. And, um, and so now this, what has happened in Kamloops has prompted, um, I believe, um, more urgency in, in the search of these, uh, all former residential school sites is what we want. Um, so that we can, you know, uncover all of these children, um, that are in unmarked graves, um, and account for them. And then, um, I think once that's done, we'll have a clearer picture of what we need to do to move forward um, to begin to heal and also to hold accountable those who need to be held accountable for um, what has happened in this country. Uh, obviously, the situation in Kamloops and the confirmation of those 214 or sorry, 215 souls believe uh, beneath the, the site of the school. Um, obviously, that has uh, awoken this nation. And now another one here. What's going to happen, David, once these investigations start moving forward and all of this is confirmed? How is this going to change the discussion? Well, I mean... I mean, hopefully it, it continues the sort of revelation that happened with Kamloops is that, you know, these are things that we have, we as Indigenous people have been saying for quite a long time. And um, it has been the discovery of the, of the uh, mass grave in Kamloops has been, uh, again, the discovery of these, um, these children in, in Brandon. Um, and it has woken Canadians up, as you said, and Canadians are rightfully, uh, and understandably outraged, but also surprised that, you know, we, we don't believe that this could happen in our country. And I think we need to get over that. We need to get over that surprise. We need to go over that shock. Um, and, and once we do that, once we accept that, okay, this happened in our country, this is a part of our history. Um, if we can unequivocally um, acknowledge that the residential school system was a system of genocide, um, then we can begin to think about um, what kind of actions that we need to take to work towards whatever healing looks like. Um, and I, what, my, what my hope is, and what my, what, at the same time what my worry is, is that there's going to be so much of this happening uh, that we're going to become desensitized to it, um, mm-hmm. where, we, you know, I, I just don't want this to become a part of a news cycle, where mm-hmm. in a couple of weeks we don't think about it as much as we did now. Um, because we can't forget and we can't let the lives of these children be forgotten. Um, you know, just recently in the past day or so, we found out that there are two more sites in Saskatchewan where there are over a hundred bodies. Um, and so this is, this is going to be the reality, um, for the next while. The more sites that are searched, the more bodies that are going to be found. And I want people not to think of these as, as statistics. I want them to think of, people to think of them as children because that's what they were. And, and if that gives us clarity of thought of what we need to do and who we need to hold accountable, then uh, um, I think that's what we need to be doing. We certainly know the Catholic Church's role in all of this and the discussion there and, and, and how the Pope has not yet apologized for any of this. The other churches that were involved have and have acknowledged this. Um, Jody Wilson-Raybould, we just played a clip of the former Attorney General on the Roy Green Show uh, this past weekend saying that she hopes the Prime Minister doesn't offload his responsibility um, to the Catholic Church. Um, is that happening here? Is there... 
you know, we certainly know the role that they played and how they must uh, acknowledge this in restitution as well. Um, but is there is is it more than just that? Is he offloading the blame onto the Catholic Church? Yes, she's she's exactly right. That's 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 um, specifically certainly what he's doing right now. Is he's offloading responsibility um, because they, they have um, a vested interest in not being held accountable for crimes against humanity. You know, it, it, it legally, I think it opens them up to a whole host of, of problems that they are, um, they should be encountering. They should be answering to these, to, to those, to that host of problems because the governments of this country are responsible for what happened to these children. Um, and you haven't heard the words genocide come out of Trudeau's lips. I don't think um, he, he continues to talk about how the Catholic church needs to apologize for their role. Um, but at the same time, um, he is fighting into survivors in court um, because they don't want to be held accountable for what happened. Um, so he can apologize all he wants. He can go on the television and look all weepy-eyed, but he's our leader. He is the leader of this country, and he is not doing what he needs to do right now, and it's very upsetting. Will all of these sites not need to be inspected? Will not all of these sites need to be investigated? Yes, all of them. All of them should be searched. All of them should be investigated so that we can bring all of these children home. And we know that there are far more children that still are yet to be found. Um, And we also know that in the past, the Harper government blocked these sites from being searched. Um, We need um, people to put pressure on the government um, to um, support the search of these sites so that all of these children can be found and brought home. All of them need to be searched unequivocally, each one of them. When does that decision, when is that decision made? I thought that seemed like, I think for a lot of Canadians, that was common sense after we discovered Kamloops. Um, Is there an honest effort moving forward to actually do that? I think there's, there's, there's a will of the people. That's you know I think there's a will of the people and when is when there's a will of the people will of the people, um, it, it, I think when we can come together and pressure the the right authorities to um, to allow for these searches to happen to support these searches to happen, then you know that's when that's when it'll, that that's when it'll happen. Um, but what I what I want Canadians to do is to continue to pressure their local governments, their MPs, municipal, provincial, federal governments to do what's right um, and because we, we need the support of, of leadership um, in order for these sites to be searched um, so that they don't um, block the search but searches but um, uh, conversely that they support them because they recognize as well the importance of finding these children uh, of bringing them home and um, and they need to you know get kind of put aside their self-interest um, and think about the communities, the families, the children, um, and the healing that needs to happen. We, we can't begin to heal until every single child is brought home. Every child matters. 
David Robertson with us, author of Sugar Falls, a residential school story. Of course, uh, news breaking last week that another 104 potential graves detected at a former residential school site in Brandon, Manitoba. And obviously, uh, the challenge now put forth to examine all of these sites to see what is there. David, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we sit and watch more vaccine, uh, I guess as of May, it sort of really started to crank up. And uh, the vaccine supply into the country went from little dribs and drabs to where we could actually uh, have max vaccination clinics and such and and, and get her done, per se. As a result, we have certainly uh, over 70%, 72% of Ontarians already have one jab and working on the second. Obviously, uh, today... Uh, uh, your eligibility again uh, is lowered and the time between doses has shrunk yet again. So good news as more and more uh, comes into uh, the country, uh, especially with Moderna coming in this month. Uh, there was some, uh, I guess, breaks in that supply chain before, but now that is all coming in by the end of the month as well. So uh, certainly more and more vaccines for us in our second dose. Now the conversation moves to the rest of the world. We've had many experts on that say that uh, obviously we are not done until everyone has had a vaccine or as many as that we can certainly get into arms uh, and, and, and you know, to, to stop this as a truly global pandemic. Uh, interesting information coming out of the Angus Reid Institute. Seven in ten oppose sharing vaccines globally until vaccinations in Canada are complete. And what is complete? Let's bring in Scott Gilmore, editor-at-large for Maclean's and senior fellow with the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, University of Toronto. And with us now, Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. It's good to hear from you, Scott. I can't hear Scott. Are you there? Oh, I'm I'm here. Okay, Scott, I can hear you I'm now. I'm here. That's can good. you guys hear me? Uh, we can hear you now. <laughs> We're we good go. to go. Uh, so what are your thoughts on this survey? Seven in ten, about 72% saying, you know, we got to finish here before we go elsewhere. Your thoughts? Are you surprised? Well, when I saw the headline, I, I was surprised and slightly alarmed and wondering, when did the Canadians become so, so selfish and, and inward-looking? But then I went and read through the, the survey itself from Angus Reid, and I discovered that the question on that particular part of the, of the poll was a little tricky. It, it basically implied that it was an either-or situation, that either Canada focuses on vaccinating everybody in Canada or it shifts its focus to focus on overseas. And obviously, the reality is that it's not an either or, that we can do both simultaneously. And I think that if Canadians you know, were, were asked that question, I don't think anybody would have a problem with us trying to help, or very few Canadians would have a problem with us trying to help others overseas. Uh, at what point have we made enough of a dent to start doing that? Well, I think that's different from province to province. So in Ontario, it continues to seem like we've got a, a, a real mess on our hands when it when it comes to organizing the province's distribution of the second vaccine. In other provinces, it seems to be much more orderly. I think there's probably enough slack in the system right now that we can begin to send some overseas. But honestly, that's a question for a logistician. <laughs> and unfortunately, very few of them seem to be involved in our response to this. 
Uh, are you surprised, though, that Canadians are, are saying, uh, considering that what we've been through for the last 65 weeks or so, that they want this project complete before they moved on to the next one, considering it took us so slow or so long to get to where we are now? We're certainly not in the, in the position where the United States was or the U.K., uh, who were months and months ahead of us. Oh, months and months ahead of us. My friends in New York are mocking me almost on a daily basis because they've list, lifted literally every single COVID restriction in the city of New York. They're back to 2019 and they're loving it. So, yes, I, I imagine Canadians are getting frustrated and they should be hammering away at their provincial leaders to get themselves vaccinated as quickly as possible. I'm actually surprised at how little anger we're seeing directed to uh, our premiers in that regard. And I'm also a little bit surprised that people are being seem to be very casual about getting that second vaccination. I don't see people banging down the doors. They're grumbling, they're griping on social media, but they're not lining up uh, at three o'clock in the morning to get be the first in line. Um, uh, I'm, I'm surprised that you're, uh, you're saying that the provinces should be doing a better job of doing this. Haven't they been doing a reasonably good job considering we didn't really start getting any really amount of vaccine until May? Haven't there they, a, haven't they made pretty good strides? To go around. No, if we want to talk about the federal government's uh, mistakes here, we could go on for hours. Um, they clearly got going too slowly. It was it, it was very evident from looking at the uh, vaccination rates of other countries around the world that we were slow out of the gate. But now that we are seeing a surplus of vaccines in the country, the onus is on the premiers, I would argue, to make sure that they're getting into the arms. It's, it's no longer the federal government's responsibility. We could argue that we're at this place because of the federal government, but for us to move forward faster, it's the premiers. Uh, Again, uh, can we go any faster than we already are? Uh, Absolutely we could. If you take a look at how other countries approach the vaccination plan, they they approached it with, uh, you know, literally military precision, where they would actually bring out the military to help um, set up vaccination camps. In New York, they were going door-to-door, they were setting it up in Grand Central's terminal and, and elsewhere. There were so many different things that we could be doing to get those vaccines out there that we don't seem to be doing in Canada, and I don't understand why. Um, right up until very recently, um, and, and you know, I haven't talked to the head of the Hamilton Emergency Table in probably a couple of weeks now, but they were still waiting for adequate supplies to do mass vaccination uh, situations like, you know, in, in, in arenas and this sort of thing. Um, uh, now that that's there, I mean, is it, 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 are people who want a vaccine not getting it? Well, you know, I, I would love to see some really good up-to-the-minute hard data on that. Because, but I haven't, I haven't seen it yet, and I'm having to, to put my opinion on this, what I'm reading in the newspapers, what I'm seeing on social media. And what I'm seeing there is a lot of frustration of people who are, are trying to navigate their way through the system and are trying to, to get themselves uh, a, a jab in the arm. And a lot of people that have basically just sort of shrugged and said, well, I've been told that uh, you know, I'm a middle-aged, white, healthy male, Therefore, I'm probably not going to get vaccinated until August, September, so I'm not going to worry about it now. Uh, you know, we often see as they lower eligibility, as they shrink the the amount of duration of the time between doses and such. Uh, for example, today in Ontario, uh, again, uh, allowing those for, with AstraZeneca to get the second uh, dose of their choice, that now shrunk from 12 weeks 
uh, to eight weeks. Uh, obviously, in the first couple of days, there's issues trying to book. But for the most part, is it not relatively easy for most Canadians uh, to, to get a shot? I mean, that's why we're over 70% of where we are now. Well, we're, we're, those numbers are a little misleading. So Canada is now beating the United States and the UK and other countries in terms of first shot in the arm. And you're right, we're over 70%. It's a great number. But if you take a look at second shot, Canada's still in, in the single digits, and we're well behind a lot of these other countries. Yeah, but that's not to distribution. That's supply. Again, they've chose to give out the first dose rather than saving the second dose. But what's why is it more exactly. difficult to get the second dose in after? Because you know the people have already done this once, so doing it again. Uh, isn't that difficult. We all know the reason that we did the first dose uh, and, and not hold the second was was a lack of supply. So, again, considering we've got so many vaccinated with the first shot so quickly, considering these just started in May and it's now June 14th and we're at 70-some-odd percent, does that not bode well for the second shot? We just have to do the same thing again. Listen, I would like to, I would like to say so. I, I've, <laughs> I've learned over the last 14 months not to be optimistic. We know originally when we went into lockdown, I thought we were only going to be a few more weeks. But it is middle of June. I am booking some holiday plans. I suspect your your listeners are as well. It does look like our numbers are beginning to pick up. So I, I'm going to err on the side of optimism on this one, but I'm prepared to be disappointed. Uh, and again, you think this is lack of distribution from the provinces at this point? It's it, it, There's no one single answer. There is a, uh, from top to bottom, there is enough blame to go around for everybody. But right now, if we could do one thing to make the, the vaccine go out into arms as fast as possible, we would focus on the distribution side, I believe. And are we not doing that? Like, again, we've seen tremendous uptake in the last six weeks since these shipments increased. As soon we as are, the shipments increased, we've seen the numbers increase. You know, I think this is a question of could we be doing better? So right now, yeah, we're doing we're doing much more than we were doing six weeks ago or even two weeks ago, and we're doing much better than some other countries who are in similar situations. But you know, right now, in order for me to get a second vaccine, I would have to jump through a whole series of different loops to get that done. And I would probably, if I was really aggressive and I got a little bit of luck, I probably could get done in the next couple of weeks. But that would take a lot of initiative on my part. In other countries, like for example, in the United States, or depending on the state. You don't have to jump through those loops. They come to you. They create a path of least resistance for everybody. And since we have failed to do that so far, I think that there's going to be a bit of a long tail on that second vaccine because it's going to require everybody to be very, very motivated to do it. And some provinces like Alberta, they're realizing that's going to be a problem and they're coming up with ideas like a, a lottery. They're giving away $3 million to get people to vaccinate. But every that's day, in Manitoba, yeah. As the um, every day as the as this country begins to open up more and becomes looks a little bit more normal, that pressure on individuals to go out and get vaccinated is going to be reduced and reduced and reduced. And so those people who are sort of on the fence or living busy lives, they might not be doing it as quickly as they could be. They say with more supply, uh, then the hesitancy uh, starts to kick in. Scott Gilmore with his editor-at-large for McLean's and senior fellow with the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, University of Toronto. Scott, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care, Scott. 
as we are hearing more and more vaccine uh, coming into the country uh, this month, Moderna uh, shipments have uh, kicked in as well as the Pfizer. So uh, Canada, I believe just over 70% or so, uh, certainly in Ontario, 72% of Ontarians already have the first shot. Uh, and of course, we're uh, ramping up uh, the, uh, the effort to get you your second shot as uh, those timelines are uh, narrowing as well. So now uh, the talk moves to the rest of the world, as we've had many experts on the show say, until it is eradicated all over the planet, uh, it still is a major concern. Let's bring in Dr. Jason Nickerson, Humanitarian Affairs Advisor for Doctors Without Borders and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks very much for having me. So uh, we're obviously seeing the focus now move towards vaccinating the world. The G7 was over the weekend uh, and, and efforts there to get the world vaccinated. Your thoughts, is it enough? Uh, the short answer is, is no. Uh, what we're seeing uh, is a, a massive inequity in action uh, today. So uh, there's a massive disparity in access to COVID vaccines between people living in wealthy countries, such as Canada, where, as you mentioned, you know, we're, we're hovering around, I believe, 70% of, of all uh, Canadians have been uh, vaccinated with at least one dose. Um, and the reality uh, for billions of people on the planet who are living in uh, low-income countries uh, who, who simply do not enjoy the same access to, to COVID vaccines. And in fact, uh, you know, we, we, up until about a week ago, were hovering around fewer than 1% of all COVID vaccines having been given in, in low-income countries. So as I say, you know, this is a, a profound moral failure on the part of the world to, to ensure access to, to COVID vaccines. Um, but it, it's also simply just bad public health. Uh, if we have billions of people living in countries uh, around the world that do not have access to the same kind of protection and the virus is circulating uh, in, in communities. And that, quite frankly, places all of us at risk uh, of uh, variants of, of concern that, that could emerge, uh, potentially compromising the effectiveness of, of our vaccines. So, um, you know, this is a matter of, of global public health ethics, but frankly, it's also just a matter of, of good global public health. Um, are you convinced that by the time Canada is vaccinated that we will be doing that? Uh, 70% of Canadians want to be fully vaccinated. Uh, or, or sorry, 70% of Canadians say that we should be fully vaccinated before uh, sharing. So at what point do we start sharing? Well, we should be starting to, to share now. Um, so Canada has amassed a portfolio of vaccines, uh, roughly 400 million doses. Uh, of COVID vaccines have been secured by the, the federal government. Um, so, you know, we certainly have uh, gas in the tank, if you want to think of it that way, um, and to, to start sharing. Um, so UNICEF and, and other organizations have, have done the math on this, um, and it is imminently possible for countries to start committing a percentage uh, of uh, vaccines uh, that have been secured to global vaccination efforts. So what I'm talking about here is committing, you know, somewhere between five to, to 20% of, of future vaccine shipments coming in in the coming months um, to uh, be donated to, to scale up vaccination efforts uh, around the world. That can be done uh, while still ensuring that Canadians will be vaccinated uh, in, in the coming weeks and months. So the, the overall impact uh, in terms of the domestic vaccine rollout uh, would would be uh, quite low. 
while uh, facilitating the, the scale up of, of global vaccination efforts, which in terms of, of impact on global public health would be very high. So this is something that we should be doing as an emergency stopgap measure um, to stop a surge, a potential surge of cases uh, in other countries that, that are not protected. Uh, we should be doing this uh, immediately. Uh, the Prime Minister says we have or will donate 100 million COVID-19 vaccines to the world. Is that, our, is that a good share for us? Well, I think we need to, to uh, understand that figure a little bit better. Uh, so yesterday's announcement was framed as 100 million uh, doses. When we look at the, the breakdown further, um, it looks like it's actually 13 million physical doses. Uh, so, you know, doses in, in vials that can actually go somewhere. Um, that seems to be Canada's donation. The other 87 million uh, that form part of uh, that announcement yesterday seems to come in the form of uh, financial contributions to something called the ACT Accelerator, uh, which is a global initiative to uh, basically facilitate the, the purchase of, of COVID vaccines for, for uh, participating countries. Um, you know, the, the, all of these things are good. Um, and these are, are important things for us to do. But I think what we need to recognize is that today the, the available supply of, of COVID vaccines uh, is limited and has largely been monopolized by uh, a handful of, of wealthy countries. So money in the bank uh, to purchase vaccines is obviously an important thing. Um, but at the moment, there are very few vaccines that are available for purchase. Um, and so the, the impact of financial contributions today um, is quite limited unless we uh, agree to facilitate the, the scale up and the diversification uh, of vaccine manufacturing capacity, which is the other thing that countries need to be doing immediately. We need more factories in different parts of the world uh, producing uh, COVID vaccines. And that's just not something that we've seen happening in, in uh, sort of the diversified way that we need. So, you know, we need more plants in, in different places that can produce uh, the doses to meet global demand. Mm, boy, I think we've learned that lesson, haven't we? Uh, Dr. Jason Nickerson with us, Humanitarian Affairs Advisor for Doctors Without Borders, talking about now how the need is to vaccinate the rest of the world. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks very much. You too. It is 1.14. Quick break here. Uh, discovery in Brandon, Manitoba that once again uh, has Canadians hanging their head. Uh, we'll talk about that when we return. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.